Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Chile, Argentina, the United States, and a see you in hell from fascist Spain. Going to start out in Chile. Chile's right-wing opposition has won a major victory in an election in that country for representatives attending a draft council to draft that country's new constitution. This would be Chile's first new constitution since the Pinochet dictatorship. The Pinochet dictatorship rewrote Chile's constitution in 1980, and while it has been amended since, it still contains a bunch of creepy authoritarian crap that the Pinochet dictatorship put into it. There has already been an election essentially to decide to remake the Chilean constitution. However, the approval for that constitution has been left to popular vote. This new constitutional assembly has been assembled because of the failure of an earlier progressive draft of a new Chilean constitution. This is a sharp blow to the current progressive government of Chile, led by Gabriel Boric, and it is extremely good for his opponent in the Chilean presidential election, José Antonio Cast, who is a Chilean businessman and nationalist leader, who is essentially touting this as an example that his politics, nationalist and right-wing politics in Chile, are the ascendant politics in Chile, and that Boric's success in the previous presidential election was more or less a fluke. Moving on to Argentina, the Argentine Supreme Court has suspended provincial elections in two northern provinces of Argentina. Those provinces are currently ruled by the in-power Peronist Party. The Peronist Party is a confusing coalition of left progressive forces and some, like, sort of lefty right-wing forces, like forces that are kind of okay with worker power, but which are very socially conservative and also like creepy and corrupt and whatever. Anyway, the Argentine Supreme Court has said that they're suspending these provincial elections because they accuse the Peronists who are in charge in those provinces of tampering with the elections. The Argentine president, Alberto Fernandez, who is a member of the Peronist party, is really condemning these decisions. However, the actual real executive power in Argentina right now is really probably with his vice president, Cristina Kirchner, who is a former president of Argentina and is the leader, essentially, of the Peronist movement and the likely Peronist candidate for president in an upcoming Argentine presidential election. It's really unclear about what's going to happen now in Argentina. Conflict over judicial power has been spilling into many different aspects of Argentine politics, especially regarding Kirchner herself, who has been accused and found guilty of a bunch of corruption stuff, which, you know, it's pretty likely that she probably did. But the way the prosecution went ahead and how the prosecutors have been finding her guilty of all these things is also deeply connected with right wing political goals. It's it's a it's a big mess. Moving on to the United States, GOP Congressman George Santos is now in custody. He's in custody for, you know, several crimes that he committed, including a lot of lying about stuff. Uh, that is just a, frankly, I, I, I think it's a little bit of a curiosity as opposed to a big, important piece of right-wing news, but I figured I had to mention it. Moving on to other right-wing criminals in the United States, Donald Trump has been found liable for damages to a person named E. Jean Carroll. Donald Trump sexually assaulted Carroll in 1996 in a dressing room in a department store. 
Carol has won a civil suit against Trump for $5 million in damages for sexual abuse and also for defamation, because Trump, after these accusations came public, said that Carol was lying about them. He claimed A, that she had lied about the sexual assault, B, that she, quote, wasn't his type. Disgusting. That's a disgusting man. And also claimed that she made up the allegations to boost book sales for her. This comes in the wake of other judicial failures on the part of Donald Trump, and these will probably only accelerate as the 2024 presidential campaign accelerates, especially as more and more judges are starting to actually look into a bunch of Trump's crimes that he committed while president. And speaking of the crimes that Donald Trump committed while he was the president, guilty verdicts have come down for four leaders of the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys, recall, are probably the largest and most influential of the fascist organizations in the United States, at least of the like pretty openly fascist organizations. They are a network of paramilitary organizations, right-wing paramilitary male-dominated organizations in the United States. Four of their leaders, Enrique Tario, a man named Nordian, a man named Biggs, and a man named Rell, some of their biggest leaders, have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy for their involvement in the January 6th attempted coup of 2021. Importantly and very interestingly, Enrique Tario was not there. He wasn't in Washington, D.C. He didn't storm the Capitol building on January 6th. He was instead found guilty because he was involved in the planning of the conspiracy. He was in all of the text message threads. He was part of the planning and the like mapping out of what they were going to do when they got into the Capitol building. This really opens the door for a potential future prosecution of somebody else who was involved in the planning, but who did not actually invade the Capitol building itself, right? This is a very interesting development. This means that the leaders of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and several of the other big actual fascist networks that invaded the Capitol building have been tried and convicted of seditious conspiracy at this point. All four of these leaders of the Proud Boys, including a fifth defendant who got off on the sedition charge, but who was found guilty of a bunch of other stuff, they're all facing at least 20 years in prison. Moving on to other fascist and right-wing activity in the United States. There was a mass shooting in the United States this weekend in a city called Allen in Texas. The mass shooting was at a mall in Allen and was committed by a gunman named Mauricio Garcia. Garcia was killed by a police officer who was responding to the attack, but only after Garcia had killed eight people, including three children. At least one child was orphaned by Garcia's attack after Garcia killed both of the child's parents. Initially, there was some doubt and you know, discussion about Garcia's motives. The police and the FBI are currently searching a bunch of his social media profiles and his quarters, you know, the places that he's lived and his cars and stuff for like manifestos or things like that. But it's pretty clear that he was just a Nazi. He was wearing white supremacist logos when he attended the mall, when he went to the mall in order to commit this mass violence. He also had apparently very fresh swastika and other neo-Nazi tattoos. So like, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that Mauricio Garcia was a fascist and a neo-Nazi and that that was certainly at least part of his motivation for engaging in this act of mass violence. This has led to a lot of confusion about how a Latino man like Garcia could be a Nazi. However, 
as a scholar uh, of both fascism and also Latin American history, uh, I would say that this is related to serious misunderstandings about not just the right wing, but also Latin American racial categories and how they interact with those in the United States. There were, for example, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, a bunch of Mexican Nazis. There were national socialist movements, movements that called themselves that in many Latin American countries, and not just in Latin America, th those movements existed all around the world. The way that people in the United States, even people in the United States on the left, sort of as a knee-jerk response, decide that they need to call anything on the right wing, quote-unquote, white supremacist, as if that were the most and only salient feature of its ideology, it really obscures and makes it hard to see the truly international nature and international appeal and cross-racial appeal of fascist politics, you know? Like, Modi and the RSS and the BJP in India, they are not white supremacists, but they're definitely nationalists, and they're quasi-fascists, right? The point being that this, I hope, would open a discussion into trying to understand more about how fascism works, and how fascism interacts with racial categories in the United States, but unfortunately, that's probably unlikely. Moving on to the second act of mass violence in the United States last weekend. This was another one in Texas, in a border community called Brownsville. Brownsville is a border town in Texas on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. A driver in Brownsville drove into a line of people who were waiting at a bus outside of a migrant center in that town. The driver has been charged with manslaughter for killing about half a dozen people. And apparently the police are alleging that the fact that these people were killed outside of a migrant center has nothing to do with the violence. But frankly, I would be astonished if this was the case. I would be amazed if this were just a coincidence. This period of time right now in the United States, we are seeing a massive uptick of violence against people based on their immigration status and based on perceived racial categories. And so it, it would be amazing to me if these were completely unrelated. Finally, I'm going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am talking about a guy named Ernesto Jimenez Caballero, a Spanish fascist intellectual leader and aesthete. Jimenez Caballero was born in Madrid in 1899, where he was a young intellectual. He attended university in Spain and then spent the next several decades writing for conservative newspapers and conservative magazines, sort of like increasingly esoteric conservative groups. In the early 20th century, he was part of a continental network of esoteric conservatism and the right wing, things that would eventually give rise to various syndicalist movements, like right wing syndicalist movements, also the futurists in Italy. In Spain, Caballero got involved in groups that would eventually become the intellectual foundations of the Falange, the Spanish fascist organization. Caballero eventually moved to Germany to teach Spanish at the University of Strasbourg, where he met and married his wife, who was the sister of the consul in that city. By the 1920s, Caballero was an out and important nationalist. He did his military service for Spain in Morocco, but wrote a big expose book about how he experienced military service. He got in prison for this, but was then pardoned by the then Spanish dictator Primo de Rivera, who was himself the father of the eventual founder of the Falange, Jose Antonio. 
In the late 1920s, Caballero worked for Spanish literary magazines in Italy, and there he met a bunch of fascists and sort of reinvented himself as an esoteric Spanish nationalist along an aesthetic, futuristic line. His fascism and right-wing ideology were deeply Catholic and internationalist. He wrote a lot of books about modern decadence and the problems with Protestantism as an ideology, as a politics, and as a religious faith. This meant that as the 1920s, 30s, and 40s went on, and as the right wing in Europe became increasingly dominated by the Nazi party, Caballero was sort of sidelined, right? Because he opposed the Nazi party. He never really liked national socialism because he thought that it was a Protestant ideology as opposed to the Catholic ideology of Italian fascism. This is something that's extremely common on the right wing in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Today, of course, almost all Nazis are indebted to neo-Nazism as opposed to neo-fascism, with the exception of the people who are leading fascist movements in Italy, but that's a story for another time. By the 1930s, as fascism was growing in Spain, Caballero became an advisor and in-house philosopher to one of the country's leading fascist groups, the Juntas de Ofensiva Nacional Sindicalista, which would later be merged with the Falange to create a sort of monster acronym organization, which he served as an advisor for. He continued to lead the sort of intellectual lens of the fascist movement in Spain, or at least be one of the leaders of this movement throughout the time leading up to the Spanish Civil War. During the Spanish Civil War, he moved away. He went to Italy and he continued to advocate for the right wing in Spain. He was rewarded for his long service to the right wing in Spain by the Franco dictatorship with several diplomatic posts, which culminated into his appointment as the Spanish ambassador to Paraguay for 12 years. He continued to maintain his literary career, writing essays and novels and books of criticism and poetry and things like that. Right? You know, he was a literary, a fascist intellectual par excellence. Ernesto Jiménez Caballero eventually retired to Madrid, where he died the 14th of May, 1988, quite a long time he outlasted the Spanish dictatorship, while recovering from cataract surgery. So, Ernesto Jiménez Caballero, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.